Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All right, a couple of announcements before we get started. Just make sure you don't forget. Number one, uh, as you can tell, they're finally working on the church, so we're just waiting until, uh, see, when they paint. Where'd Sandy go? Sandy, have you been down here? Have you had a chance to ask them when they plan on painting in here? I keep forgetting to ask you to ask them that. So are you going to be down here tomorrow? Is anybody going to be down here tomorrow? Somebody? Okay, if you're... If, if you or Alan are down here and see the paint, see the people working, you can find out when they plan to paint in here. Rather than finding out at 6.30 on Thursday night that they painted and we can't handle the fumes, give us a little warning. Okay, also early voting began yesterday. And I want to encourage all of you to, to vote. Vote early, vote often, as I always say. And vote right. You can take from that anything you read into that anything you you wish to. I didn't uh, mention this on Sunday morning, but there is a I think it's Proposition Three that's on the ballot also that has to do with the lights. And uh, I was talking with a. Uh, pastor I referenced the other day, he's fought it and won three times, and I'd never heard this before, and I thought this was really interesting. The argument is that the yellow lights in Houston are not consistently the same length. Therefore, you can't judge it. One light you come to, and it's three seconds. You have plenty of time to get through. The next light is one second. You can't get through. The whole thing's a money-making scam, and it's unconstitutional. So, um, if, if they were all the same, then they could uh, possibly have a rationale for that. But I just thought you would want to uh, factor that into your voting experience. Also, we're planning the next uh, family night will be this Saturday, December the 4th, which is the first uh, Saturday in, in December. Okay, I think we're ready to... Have a few moments of silent prayer just to make sure we are ready to uh, study the Word, make sure we are spiritually prepared to uh, focus on the Scriptures this evening and what God the Holy Spirit has to teach us as we uh, still orient ourselves uh, to the book of Acts. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we express our thankfulness, our gratitude to you that we have a complete canon of Scripture, that we have the complete Old Testament and New Testament before us, that your revelation has been given to us, that we might come to understand who you are and who we are as creatures created in your image, and that we may understand how you have created reality, that as you have revealed yourself to us, you have revealed your plan 
and you have revealed your purposes in history. And especially as we study a book such as the book of Acts, which is fundamentally historical, we see that history is not uh, just the random occurrences as a result of human decisions, but that you override, oversee the progress of history and that you are moving history to an ultimate conclusion. Now, Father, as we continue our introduction to Acts, we pray that you might help us to uh, see the significance of the major doctrines, the major things that are taught here, and how they fit within the overall structure and pattern of Revelation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last time we started going through the uh, handout that I uh, prepared on an introduction to Acts. At this point, I have something on the order of, let's see, 19 or 20, oh, that didn't print at all, well, 19 or 20 points, so we see that we're not going to get through this in a huge hurry, there we go. okay, I've got about 15 at this point, and I've got about four more I want to add. But it's important to stop when we are, are do introductory overview work whenever we start a book, just so we can understand what it is that we are going to be studying and why, why it's important. This is how you should read any book. I learned a long time ago uh, more by trial and error than having somebody sit down and teach me that it was really important to read an author's introduction, to read his conclusion, because in the introduction he tells you what he's going to be telling you, and in the conclusion he gives you a summary. And then look at the table of contents, and if it's a well-written table of contents, you can follow the uh, trajectory of the author's thought as he develops the ideas that he sets forth uh, in his introduction. And then when you read it, then go back at the end, reread the introduction, reread the conclusion, and then you can put the whole thing together. Now, we don't do that all the time. We don't do that with every kind of book, but it is helpful to approach any study that way so that once you get down into all the details, they make sense because you've seen the overall map. You've seen the overall structure of what any any book is all about, and that's the kind of thing that we cover usually in an introduction. Typical things are author, date, uh, basic themes, things of that nature, some of which uh, we already covered starting last time. I looked at the uh, place. Uh, I looked, first of all, we looked at the title, where that came from, who the author was, and the arguments for the authorship of Luke, the date or time of the writing, and then the role of uh, this piece of literature within the structure of Revelation, because there's no book like Acts anywhere really in the in the whole of Scripture, it is, and it, especially in the New Testament, it has a unique and distinct place, which is one reason why its full acceptance into the canon was uh, delayed a little bit, because it was of a different nature uh, than other books. Now, last time, I believe, I finished up by looking at the, uh, at the date and the, or the place, excuse me, the place in Scripture and so tonight I want to start with what is now Roman numeral 5. I've rearranged some of these numbers a little bit from the handout we gave out, and I still need to, and I've got this ready to upload to the uh, website, so we'll do that today, tonight or tomorrow. 
So there'll be a fresh copy there. Uh, and if at any time you have questions, just kind of write them down, and then um, if I remember at the end, we'll take take a few questions to make sure that everybody understands everything. Teachers should always let students ask questions because a lot of times when people ask you questions, you look at the questions and you go, either you weren't listening or I wasn't communicating. And sometimes teachers get frustrated and they don't let students ask questions because then they realize that they didn't communicate. So it's a good thing to have questions to make sure that uh, what was intended to be communicated was communicated. All right, we're in what I'm going to call, what is, I'm going to number as Roman numeral five, which is the role of the Holy Spirit in Acts. And this is the fundamental, foundational, key doctrine all the way through the book of Acts. And if you look at the handout here, I've broken down how many times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in each of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts. The role of the Holy Spirit and the presence and activity of the Holy Spirit is really the key uh, issue in Acts. This is something completely new in history. Something new happens for every believer. There is the indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit. There is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And then there is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to have to define each of those terms and the, there's going to be some things about this that you've probably never been taught before. Imagine that. And there are some things that I find as I study through many even dispensational writers and older dispensational writers that they don't clarify, especially in relation to the filling of the Holy Spirit. What you read about the filling of the Spirit in the book of Acts is not what you read about in Ephesians 5.18. I'll just say that right off the bat. It's not the same thing. Totally different grammatical construction, and in many cases, it's a slightly different verb. So it's it's a completely uh, completely different kind of ministry than what Paul talks about when he commands us to be filled by means of the Spirit in Ephesians 5:18. So what we see in the Book of Acts is that there is a change. And I'll come back and talk about this a little more. But there is a change in the way that God administers and oversees history. Heretofore, God has worked, had worked in history primarily through uh, the Israelite people, through the Jews, through, who were under the Mosaic Covenant. But because of the rejection of Jesus as Messiah, there's going to be a pause. He hits the pause button in terms of Israel, his plan for Israel, and he inserts something different, something unexpected, something that was never announced in the Old Testament. Now, why do you think it was that the church isn't announced in the Old Testament? Well, think about it. If the church is something different and the, the initiation of the church is a result of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, then to have, have any indication of that in the Old Testament would have, uh, would have caused the, 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 the situation to be read ahead of time and would have taken away the reality of the free will volition of the, of the Jews to accept or reject the Messiah. They would have known ahead of time that, wait a minute, something's going to happen. We're not going to accept the Messiah. Something's going to be funny. So there had to be a real situation there, a real decision that is unaffected by any other factor. 
so that we see these real hypotheticals, let's say, these real contingencies, that's a better word, in, in history that are dependent upon people's decisions. And if they decide one way, then God has, a, has his plan. And, of course, in his omniscience, he knows what it's going to be, but his knowledge doesn't cause people to make those decisions. Now, we're going to get into this whole issue of predetermined, uh, predetermined uh, decisions, election, foreknowledge, all of this as we get into the book of Acts in a couple of different places. But the, the element where people get so confused is they think that if God knows that and says that X will happen a certain way, that that somehow takes away any volition, any individual responsibility or free will from his creatures. And the problem with that is that it's viewing the, the creator in terms of his omniscience and his oversight of creation and the way he... Uh, supervises creation and brings things about to be the same kind of causation that occurs within the creaturely realm. And just as God's knowledge is not the same as our knowledge, the way God works to bring things about is not the same that we do. So it's a it's trying to compare apples and oranges, and it just doesn't work. So we see that there's a transition that's taking place here, and it's really important to understand the nature of that transition But the focal point that I'm just emphasizing here under Roman numeral 5 is the role of the Holy Spirit and that he's going to have these three key ministries in the life of every believer. Now, that's never, ever happened before. In the Old Testament, believers had some believers had a relationship with the Holy Spirit, but only a few. One time I added it all up, and it's fewer than 90 it may be fewer than 50, but I, let, let's just assume, we'll assume all the writers of Scripture had a relationship with the Holy Spirit in terms of uh, inspiration of the Scripture. And then we have various prophets, and we had, have various others who were involved in different aspects of the administration of the kingdom who had a relationship with the Spirit. We had the judges. The, the Spirit came upon them. But the role of the Holy Spirit to those believers had nothing to do with their spiritual life. That's the first major mistake that most people make, is when they're reading the Old Testament, they read that the Spirit of God came upon Jephthah, the Spirit of God came upon Samson, the Spirit of God came upon David, that it's something similar to the role of the Holy Spirit today. But it's not. The role of the Holy Spirit in indwelling, filling, and the baptism has to do with our identification with Christ in terms of baptism and then, and the indwelling has to do uh, both with, uh, or it occurs at salvation, but it also is the foundation for our uh, sanctification in terms of both our, our positional sanctification and our ongoing experiential sanctification. The Holy Spirit is given to us in this church age to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. That's the key is for the spiritual life. But the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with the spiritual life of those who had a relationship with him in the Old Testament. He simply empowered them to carry out their functions as leaders in the theocracy. For the kings, it was in terms of leadership ability. For the judges, it was leadership ability plus military ability. For the prophets and the writers of Scripture, it had to do with inspiration. For uh, people like Aholiab and Bezalel, who built the furniture for the for the tabernacle gave them the Holy Spirit gave them skill 
to, in their craftsmanship to construct everything necessary for the uh, temple and the, uh, the tabernacle and later those who worked on the temple. But it doesn't have anything to do with their spiritual life. You can't go to anything in the scripture uh, to indicate that. So there's a huge shift. This is a mega shift in history. Something radical changes on the day of Pentecost with the coming of God, the Holy Spirit. And we see that just by the way, um, by the emphasis. The Holy Spirit's mentioned four times in chapter 1, six times in chapter 2, none in chapter 3, two or three times depending on the text. There's a textual variant there in chapter 4. Three times in chapter 5, three times in chapter 6. All this is in the, in the handout. Six times in chapter 8, two times in chapter 9. And you just see it all the way through uh, the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is mentioned again and again and again and again, emphasizing the fact that it is this ministry of the Holy Spirit is new. You don't have this in any book of the Bible up to this point. And all of a sudden, it's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And there is a, a shift there. So uh, the second thing we can note is not only the distribution, this, this increasing emphasis on the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, but also the major events, uh, all of the major events that occur in the book of Acts are related to are, and described to be related to the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In the first chapter, the Holy Spirit's coming is prophesied and scripture Revelation is attributed to him. Uh, Peter, when Peter gets the 120 together in the upper room to make a decision about uh, whether or not they should replace Judas, he quotes from Scripture and says that the Holy Spirit revealed in the Scripture. So uh, this is one of the few times, we, first times we see the Holy Spirit mentioned as the author of Scripture. Then there are the events that occur around the uh, day of Pentecost and also the healing of the lame man in chapter 3. And all of these miraculous events are attributed to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're going to have to deal with that term. It's, I think it's more of a general term, less, less uh, specific than these uh, other ones that, we've been, that, that I've just mentioned. Uh, in Acts 5 and 6, we see a description of the growth of the church. And as the believers begin to serve each other, this is all an outworking of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is involved around the events of, of Stephen stoning, then Paul's salvation in Acts chapter 8. Then the Holy Spirit's definitely involved in uh, Acts 10 and 11, the conversion of Cornelius and the inclusion of Gentiles within the church, etc. So we see this constant uh, mention of God the Holy Spirit as the church this new organism, this new entity that is known as the body of Christ. It is not a church in terms of an individual localized congregation, but the church in terms of that included all the believers in Jesus Christ, everyone who had accepted him as part of that new body. Now, they don't understand all of the dimensions to this yet. That's what is interesting. The, there's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And Peter describes it as the outpouring of the Spirit. Now, Jesus in Acts chapter 1 uh, lets them know, promises them that the Holy Spirit will come not many days from now and that this was what John the Baptist had prophesied. Later on, when we get into... Uh, Acts chapter 5 and 6 and 7, they recognized that what had happened 
on the day of Pentecost was this baptism of the Spirit. But when it happens, they don't know what it is. So he just uses this general term of the outpouring of the Spirit. And it's only as subsequent revelation is given, specifically through Paul, that that um, that the the early church leaders began to understand and came, began to properly interpret what occurred to them. And that's a really important principle for us. Uh, that is that we can have all kinds of experiences that are labeled spiritual in, in our lives. And you'll talk to people who have all kinds of, of experiences in life. Some of them are very emotional and deeply personal, and you're never going to convince them that something different happened. Uh, but you have to recognize that we're all going to have different kinds of experiences in different kinds of things. And we have to decide now how are you going to interpret those experiences? Are you going to let your experience interpret the Bible? Or are you going to let the Bible interpret experience? Seems like a basic question, doesn't it? The Bible tells us how to properly understand the experiences that we have, not the other way around. And yet we live in a world where people are intensely emotional and they've thrown away the idea of objective external truth. So what they want to do is interpret their relationship with God or their, quote, spirituality in terms of their own personal feelings, their own personal uh, experiences, this kind of thing, rather than letting the Bible tell them how they should interpret those ex- those experiences. And, and we see this example in the uh, leaders in the early church is that only as they get subsequent revelation are they able to properly understand what happened on the day of Pentecost, what was happening when Peter and John went to uh, Samaria and, uh, and the Holy Spirit came upon those Samaritan believers. And later in Acts, uh, Acts 10 and 11, when the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius in his household. So experience has to be interpreted by, uh, by the Word of God. So we see this emphasis under Roman numeral 5 on the role of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts distinguishes and shows us that something, God is doing something new in history. So that leads us to the next section, which is Roman numeral 6, which is the place of Acts in history. The place of Acts in history. Earlier I talked about uh, the place of Acts within, the, uh, within Revelation. And now I'm talking about the book of Acts, I think. Yeah, the book of Acts in history. What did I call that back here? Yeah, I, I talked about it under Roman numeral 4 was the place of Acts within the Bible. So this is its place in history. Now, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, now 1 Peter 1, 20 to 21, tells us that no interpretation, was, no scripture was a matter of private interpretation, but the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That means that they're not interpreting the events around them on the basis of their own experience, but that as God the Holy Spirit is overseeing them, superintending them, as God the Holy Spirit is working through them through the process that we call inspiration, that they are able to write about the things that happen and give us God's interpretation. 
And so God, being the author of history and the one who supervises history, is the one who interprets it. Now, this role of inspiration is very important. We use that word. That's one of those uh, uh, words that um, often gets kind of loose and fuzzy. Uh, Inspiration uh, means, literally, if you break it down in English, in, it's, it's inspire, spire from spiration to breathe, to breathe something in. But the Greek word that's used in 2 Timothy 3.16 is the word theopneustos, which means God breathed. So God is the author of Scripture, and he breathes, as it were, using that as a, as a metaphor, he breathes that into the author of Scripture, and the author of Scripture then exhales it in what he writes. And so God the Holy Spirit, in some way we don't fully understand, guides and oversees what the individual writer writes in such a way that his personality still comes through in his writings, his own personal background, vocabulary, education, things of this nature are still present. You can see there's a tremendous difference in the writing style of Luke in Acts when you compare him to John in Revelation or uh, the Gospel of John. And Paul writes very, very differently than either Luke or John. So their individual personalities are are uh, preserved, but the Holy Spirit makes sure that what they say is what God intends to be communicated and that there's no error in the original. Now, copies... Copies may contain errors because people make mistakes as they copy something. Now, you're going to run into some very odd people every now and then who want to say that the those who copied Scripture were inspired, but the oddest of that group are those who say that those who translated the King James Bible were inspired just as much as the original authors. In fact, the, the King James-only crowd will argue that the uh, writers of Scripture were more inspired than the writers of the original. So that if you're not studying in the King James Version, then you really don't have the Word of God. The problem with that is I always ask is which King James Version? Because it's been modified many, many times over the years as the language updated and little things. I'm, I'm not talking about major revisions, but there's a lot of just minor revisions that took place uh, over the years as well. So inspiration refers to a specific and a unique kind of activity, very, very different, very, very different from the way we might use the English word inspire when we talk about somebody, for, for example, a great writer, great author who writes uh, stunning prose or brilliant drama and say, well, they were just, they've just been inspired or that just, that just moved me so much. We might use the word inspire there, uh, in terms of a, of a, the way it impacted us. But that is not how the scripture talks about inspiration or in theology. We talk about the unique inspiration of scripture. Now, I, I made an allusion, uh, Sunday morning at the, as we were wrapping up to something, um, Jim Myers had, talked about about six weeks or so ago when he, uh, when he was here, and he referenced uh, Glenn Beck. And a lot of people don't know this about Mormon theology. In, in Mormonism, there was this prophecy that was given by Joseph Smith. Glenn Beck, of course, is a Mormon. He has said some things 
And I've read transcripts of some things that he has said where it seems like he might understand the gospel. It's really difficult to know for sure. Um, But anyway, that's another story. There was a prophecy that was given by Joseph Smith because he had a very high view of the United States of America and the Constitution. This prophecy was that there would come a time when the Constitution of the United States would be threatening on the verge of collapse, and it would be rescued and recovered by a Mormon. And the Mormon, in Mormon, the Mormon, in Mormon theology, you you have the same. They picked this up, or Joseph Smith picked this up from uh, Platonism, that there are pre-existent souls. That's like Plato. Your your soul isn't created when you are uh, when you're born. God doesn't create and impart the soul at the time of birth. They're pre-existent souls. And in Mormon theology, the God of this earth, because they have many many gods. Uh, Mormonism is polytheistic. Their major saying is, "As as God is, you will no. As 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 you as uh, what is it? As God is, you will be. As God was, you are. Uh, everybody can become a god. And what happens is, after you die and you get resurrected and become a god, you get your own planet and you get to start the whole thing all over again." So there are many, many gods. It is, Mormonism is not a monotheistic religion. Mormonism is a polytheistic religion. And so in their view, what you have is that, that this god of this earth had all these little pre-existent souls, and he picked certain pre-existent souls that were specifically prepared to become the founders of the American Republic so that what they wrote in the founding documents was as inspired by God and in the same way as the Scriptures. Now, you just need to be aware of that when you hear uh, Glenn Beck talk sometimes. He has a very mystical Mormon view of the inspiration of the uh, Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and I've heard him talk about this. I've heard him say, oh, the Constitution was inspired by God. No, it wasn't. That wasn't. The declaration wasn't. These men weren't. But that's where he's coming from. That doesn't mean that some of the things that he says in his analysis of the Constitution, the history, and the founding of the American Republic are not true. But you have to understand and think think knowingly whenever you listen to anybody that their background and their religion often influences the way they shade certain things. So you can just be uh, be aware of that. So under God the Holy Spirit is inspires the writing of the book of Acts so that we have the divine interpretation of the early history of the church. And when you think about all the things that could have happened and all the things that did happen in those 30 years, we're not told that much. We're not told about any of the apostles except for Peter uh, except for Peter and Paul, where a couple of others are mentioned, James is mentioned, John's mentioned. Uh, in in the book, but they don't say anything. Uh, a couple of others are present, but we don't hear them say anything or do anything. So there's there's a lot of things that were done. Why is it? Now hopefully we'll get to the answer to this question some tonight. Why is it that only the acts of Peter and Paul are are mentioned? Why is it that only the expansion of Christianity into Western Europe is mentioned? Why don't we learn about the expansion? of Christianity into Africa, into North Africa, into uh, the Arab countries, into Iran, 
uh, into the Parthian Empire at that time and further east. It happened. We know that. We know from tradition. We know from some other evidence that by the end of the first century, the gospel had gone into all these areas. But the Holy Spirit isn't concerned about that. The Holy Spirit is only concerned about the uh, progress of the gospel among the Jews through the ministry of Peter and then through the Apostle Paul into, into Western, uh, Western Europe. So in Acts, God gives us what, uh, a look at history, what he emphasizes, what he ignores, uh, what he describes in detail, because what he's showing is this new work in history that the church is this living, growing, dynamic organism that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it's not a human product. The human beings do not make this happen. It is energized. It's given birth to by God, the Holy Spirit. And the church then is a unique entity in history. And that ought to really change our own view. We ought to sit up and get excited about that. We are part of this this new movement that God started in Acts. We're just several chapters down the road in 2010 and uh, we only have the introduction, the first chapters given to us uh, here in the book of Acts. So in these chapters, God emphasizes the expansion of the church through the witness, that's a key word in Acts, witness of the uh, apostles and the other believers in the early church as God uses that to take the gospel throughout the world. So, so we see that this is going to be related back to uh, Abraham's call in Genesis chapter 12, and it's going to take us even further back into Genesis chapter 9 and the prophecy given uh, by Noah in relationship to his three sons. Now the next, uh, next section that I have in the notes is Roman numeral 7. These are various titles and names for Jesus in the book of Acts. And so by looking at all of these different titles, we see a, a basic Christology. He's called the Christ, the Messiah. This is emphasized many times in the book of Acts. In the notes, I just put a few references. He is called the Christos, Ha-Christos, which is Greek for uh, HaMashiach, which is the uh, Hebrew word for the anointed one. And that uh, even though you the word Messiah or Mashiach is used only a couple of times in the Old Testament in reference to this future one who will come and reign over Israel. The primary emphasis you get is of the son of David, the branch, um, the, the root and the branch, the root of Jesse, the branch of David. Uh, you see this this connection to the Davidic covenant that God promised that there would be one who would come from the line of David who would rule over Israel and would bring in this a perfect kingdom, and Israel would be in the preeminent place of all of the nations. And that is the Davidic covenant. And so when you read the term, the Christ, the Messiah, that connects Jesus to those Old Testament, um, those Old Testament prophecies. A second t- title, as it's applied to him several times, is that he is called the servant of God. He's called your servant in a uh, prayer, for example, directly uh, where, where the individual is speaking to God, so the second person singular there refers to God uh, as, as he's the servant. And so that, again, connects him back to Isaiah, 
because Isaiah predicted that this one who would come that would be the greater son of David uh, from the root and the branch of, of Jesse would be the one who would uh, be a, the servant, the suffering servant who would bring redemption uh, to God's people. He's called the son of man, which emphasizes his humanity. In, in Hebrew, you, you have uh, a t- typical uh, descriptive phrase of somebody as being the son of something. Whatever the something was, that's what you were describing them. If they were a fool, they were called the son of a fool. If they were a murderer, they're called the son of a murderer. You often don't see that in the English translations because they just give us this, the significant translation. So if it's in the Hebrew, if it says the son of, he was the son of a murderer, they'll just say he was a murderer. So you miss that. But that's uh, what this means. So when Jesus is called the son of God, the scripture is saying he's God. He's not, they're not talking about derivation or birth. When we say the son of man, they're saying he is a man. He is a human being. So we have the title son of man. He's called Lord, which is the uh, Greek um, kurios, which is, the, which is comparable to Adonai from the Old Testament, which is one of the uh, names for God. He's called the Lord Jesus, uh, which connects. He's called Jesus of Nazareth, indicating that he, he because Jesus was a common name, he is the Jesus who was uh, from Nazareth. He's called the Prince and Savior in 531. Prince, because he is a descendant of David, he's not called king yet. Wow. Not once. How many times do you hear Christians today talk about, oh, we have to, we have to serve our King Jesus? He's not king yet. He's not sitting on his throne. He's prince, but not king. He's waiting in the wings for the, uh, for, for the kingdom, but that's not given to him until he returns at the end of the tribulation. He is the prince, and he is a savior. He is the one who will save his people. That's in Acts 5.31. He's called the Lord and Christ in 2.36, which Lord indicates deity applied to the Messiah. In Acts 2.36, he's called um, the Prince of Life in 3.15 in connection with resurrection. He's the one who who lives though he was de- though, though he was dead. He's the chief cornerstone of the church in 4.11. That means he's, and that Paul later uses that to relate to, the, he's the foundation of the church. He's called the just one in 7.52, meaning he's the one who is perfectly righteous. He is the son of God in 8.37, meaning he is God. He is called the Lord of all in Acts 10.36. And he is called the Savior in Acts 13.23. Now, here's a question that, that ought to be thought about. Here you have all of these Orthodox Jewish men. And Peter is as strict an observer of the Torah and the Old Testament law as anybody in that era. Paul was as well. And all of these others, these were not rebels. These were not secularists. These were not non-observant Jews as you have today. They were all observant Jews and monotheists. Now, here's the question. How could these men who were monotheists, who were strict observers of the, of the Mosaic Law and strict believers in the Mosaic Law, how could these men attribute deity to Jesus if there weren't a framework for that in the Old Testament? Isaiah chapter 45, you have uh, God, you have his servant speaking, and you have the Spirit, all present in the same, same context and same verses. 
You, various places in the Old Testament, you have three persons in, in, within one verse. You have uh, the Lord, you have his servant, and you have the, the Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity. And this was clear. It wasn't until about the 5th or 6th century A.D., that Judaism had to come down with a rigid, strict, Unitarian monotheism. But prior to that, it, it's not evident in, their, in, in, in the writings that have survived. So here you have these strictly observant Jews and strict monotheists who have learned that the only way to explain who Jesus is and what he did is to recognize that he was true God, fully God, in every sense of the word, God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, so that's Roman numeral 7, dealing with the titles and names for, for Jesus. And then under Roman numeral 8, some major characteristics of the book. And just keep this in mind as you read your way through the book. And I hope that some of you are beginning to read your way through the book of Acts so that you can become familiar with the uh, flow of events and major characters, major events, situations that occur. Now, this is a really important section. There are two key words that you must understand if you're going to understand the book of Acts. The first word is transitional. I've used it a few times already, but now I'm going to focus on that. It's transitional. And the second word is it's historical. It's transitional and it's historical. Transitional emphasizes the fact that that the norm of God's dealing with human history, is changing from the Old Testament pattern to the New Testament. That means it is in process of going from one state to another state, and it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen instantly. But there are other things that are going on within this transition, some things that are present, that are hangovers from the Old Testament period of time, uh, the period of the law, that die out because you have Jerusalem still standing, the temple is still standing in Jerusalem, and it doesn't get destroyed until A.D. 70. And so you have the observation of all of the Mosaic rituals still taking place in the temple, and, and at the end of Acts, Paul's going to come back to Jerusalem. He's going to make a vow. He's going to shave his head. He's going to come back to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices. And people say, well, what's that all about? Doesn't, doesn't Paul understand that the law is over with? Sure he did. He, he, he doesn't have dementia by the time you get to Acts 25. He doesn't forget everything he said in Galatians and everything he said in Romans. So let's quit treating this as if it's some sort of aberration and somehow um, Paul bumped his head and forgot everything he had ever taught. Maybe there's not a conflict between the two. Why? We're dealing with a transitional period in history where you still have elements of the Old Testament dispensation and you have elements of the New Testament uh, coming in. You still have an offer of the kingdom. In Acts 2, Peter's offering the kingdom to Israel again. In Acts, excuse me, Peter is offering the kingdom to uh, Israel again. In Acts chapter 3, Peter's offering the kingdom again. To under, you, we have to interpret a lot of things that go on in Acts 1 through 8 in light of this whole kingdom message. <clears throat> Very important. It is in transition. Uh, some things that are happening in the early part of Acts that are specifically related to the fact that uh, 
that as a nation, as a corporate entity, uh, Israel is rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. The Old Testament sign of impending judgment was that they would begin to hear uh, God's word spoken to them in an unknown language. Deuteronomy predicted that. We'll study this when we're studying on, on the gift of languages and, and tongues. Deuteronomy had predicted that this would be the sign. Isaiah, in Isaiah 14, uh, was saying this, that uh, there would, when they would hear the word of God in an unknown language, this was a sign of impending judgment upon the nation. And that came in A.D. 70, so there's no need for that after that. The whole reason we have a Pentecost, the, the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement, is because they don't understand these two things I'm talking about, that Acts is transitional and Acts is historical. Uh, historical means that the writer is describing what transpired, and he's not telling us that this is the pattern or this is the way things should be, but he is simply describing the way things were. Uh, Acts is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Descriptive means he simply tells us what happened. He's not telling us that this is how you should do it. This is, he's not telling us this is the new way to do it. He's not prescribing this as the way it should be. He is simply telling us that this is what happened. So it's very important to understand uh, those two words. It's transitional, historical. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. Aside from the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the other, these other doctrines are emphasized. The resurrection of Christ, again and again and again, he's, he's presented as the living Savior. He is the one who conquered death. He is the Prince of Life. He is the one who went into the grave for three days and came out alive again, uh, never to die again, and the one who ascended to heaven. We see prayer as a fundamental uh, doctrine all the way through the book of Acts. The importance of prayer is stressed in chapter 1. It's uh, emphasized in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and on and on. Prayer is important. We do not give proper stress or emphasis in our lives to prayer. This is something that just somehow uh, drops uh, by the wayside. Uh, Another doctrine that's emphasized is preaching. Now, there's two different words for preaching, that, that, two different Greek words that are translated preaching uh, from, the, uh, from the Greek. The first is euangelizo, evangelizo, uh, use a modern translation, where we get our word evangelism, uh, to tell the good news. Angelizo is the verb to announce, to proclaim something, and the prefix eu and the u is usually... Uh, pronounced in Greek like a V. That's where we get evangelism out of it. Um, means to proclaim good news. And this is the essence of Christianity is that we are proclaiming good news, that there is forgiveness of sin, there is justification. We have good news that we can be, we are made right with God because Jesus died on the cross for sin. So, most of the time, with ten exceptions, when you read the word preaching in Acts, it is this word evangelizo to proclaim the gospel. And that, that's its primary emphasis. The other word that's used ten times is keruso, which is a word meaning to announce something. 
And the noun form was a K-Rux, and a K-Rux was the herald who would, uh, you didn't have in the Internet at that time, you didn't have newspapers, you didn't have uh, radio or telegraph, and whenever the, the government or anybody needed to make uh, uh, information known to everybody, they, they, the court would send out these, these heralds, these announcers who would go through uh, towns and villages and make the announcement. They would go from block to block, and they would make the announcement again. Then they would go to the next block and make the announcement again so that everybody would hear it. They didn't stop to discuss things. They didn't argue about it. They didn't get distracted. They just had a mission, and that was to announce uh, a message. And that word is used. That's the word that means to preach. Now, an interesting application of that is you'll hear people, sometimes they'll, they'll, you'll have people come to hear, hear me or some other pastor who teaches, and they'll say, oh, he, I want a pastor who preaches. Well, you just revealed that you don't know anything about the Bible. Preaching is, is not a mode or a, a style, a rhetorical style uh, of uh, oratory. Preaching is simply making an announcement of truth. That's what the word means. But in English, it's come to refer to a very narrow kind of, uh, a certain kind of rhetorical or, or, or oratory, and if it doesn't fit that pattern, then it's not preaching. We have to have preaching. Usually preaching is more emotional and motivational, and so it, it gets people fired up, and, and yet when they go home, the fires go out. Rather than teaching, and yet the emphasis in Scripture is on, on teaching and instruction. Uh, the next, uh, next key word that we see that relates to the other one is the word for witnessing or being a witness. Uh, the verb is martyreo, where we get our word martyr, although the way we use the word martyr is very different. Uh, but <clears throat> you have uh, this emphasis on being a witness. This is what Jesus said in Acts uh, 180. So you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Witnessing here isn't what you and I normally use the word witnessing. We use the word witnessing as a synonym for evangelism. But this is a different kind of way. This is being a legal witness and establishing a case to be true. That's the idea that we, our lives are evidence in a trial, so to speak. And uh, that's the idea here. We find this again and again and again, which in the book of Acts, which indicates that there is something going on that's bigger and broader than uh, simply uh, proclaiming the gospel. It fits within a broader pattern. We are to be uh, these kind of legal witnesses. It's a legal term that is not unrelated to uh, the concept of presenting a defense for the truth. Uh, the word apologia or apologetic. So those two go together. They fit within a, within a concept. The other thing that we see starting in Acts 13 is the missionary expansion of the church as uh, Christians are to go out throughout the world and to be witnesses in their lives and to proclaim the gospel. Those two things fit together. And so we see the expansion, uh, missionary expansion of the church throughout the known world and then the last thing we see in terms of a major characteristic of the book is the uh, transition as the church begin, becomes more organized and you have the development of administration and leadership within a local church. 
One thing, again, I want to emphasize here is we have to remember that Acts does not present us with patterns for the New Testament church. Often you'll find people who say, I just wish we'd go back to like it was in the days of the apostles. I want to say, why? They didn't even have the word Trinity or rapture or any of these other things. They, they, they had a, and, and, and you have some people who want to go back, and so they use another word. You'll, you've seen this, and you probably want, oh, wait a minute, what does that mean? Primitive. They want to go back to the primitive church, which just means the early church. But you'll go down the road and you'll see a church out in the country and will say primitive Baptist. That doesn't mean that they're in there with uh, uh, stone and flint trying to start a fire. Theologically they are, but uh, that's another story. But people often get that way. They, they had this romanticized idealism about the early church. And yet you go back and you really study. They're, they're trying to figure out a lot of things. They're, they're still trying to figure out what Jesus meant by a lot of things. And that's what we see in the book of, uh, book of Acts. So there's this transitional uh, nature to the book of Acts. It's not prescriptive. Next point, under uh, Roman numeral 9, uh, Roman numeral 8 was the major characteristics of the book. Roman numeral 9, key doctrines, just some of the broad doctrines that we'll study. Uh, first of all, of course, is pneumatology, all of the ministries of God, the Holy Spirit, and we get into that almost immediately. The other thing we get into before we get to pneumatology is going to be apologetics. Jesus uh, presents himself alive after he rose from the dead, Scripture says, by many infallible proofs. And the Greek here indicates that he, 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 he's demonstrating that he is alive, that it is him, and that he did die and he is now risen from the dead by proofs that can't be argued against. They're incontrovertible. And he appears to hundreds of people, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 people, see the resurrected, the physical, bodily resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, that he conquered death and that he is now alive. And so he proving something to be true in real-time history is not a contradiction to faith. It's only a contradiction to faith if you have bought completely into some kind of relativistic subjectivism. And if you buy into a relativistic subjectivism, then you can't prove anything to be true. You, don't, you can't even look in the mirror and say for sure that that's you. Because after all, uh, you could be hallucinating. Maybe you don't really exist. Well, if you're smart and you follow that train of logic, you might end up where Descartes ended up and said, well, at least I think, therefore I am. And then you might have a starting point, but doesn't get you very far. That's what Descartes discovered. Rationalism ultimately collapses. The only basis we have for truth is if somebody tells us truth, which is what, uh, what the Scripture says. It's called revelation. So revelation, God reveals himself to us, but he doesn't do it in a vacuum, and he doesn't do it without confirmatory evidences. And so it's important to understand what those evidences are so that you can think uh, biblically, rationally, and logically on the foundation of Scripture. So we have pneumatology, apologetics, third, ecclesiology. The church as an organism begins in Acts chapter 2 with the birth of this new, new thing, that is the church that's later uh, described as the body of Christ. Uh, we have an emphasis on prayer, emphasis on missions and evangelism and taking the gospel to those who have, who have never heard. Another uh, 
another key theology, two key theologies that are connected are the kingdom of God and dispensations. From the very beginning in Acts chapter 1, the disciples say, Lord, in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What did they mean by kingdom? Where did they get their idea of kingdom? They got it from the Old Testament, from all these promises that God had made to David and his descendants that there would be this future glorious kingdom that would be ruled by a descendant of David. So they're saying, well, is, is that kingdom going to come down? They, they don't think of this kingdom as some pie-in-the-sky, spiritualized thing that's happening somewhere off in heaven where Jesus is. They're thinking of it as a concrete, political, uh, geographical kingdom on the earth that is led by a descendant of David who rules as the everlasting king of Israel. And Jesus responds to that and says, uh, no, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, which indicates that God has history broken up into different segments, different periods of time, which is what we refer to as dispensations. But this idea of the kingdom of God was what was offered to Israel with John the Baptist who came along and said, what? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came along and said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Where did they get that word repent? They got it from Deuteronomy 30, which we'll look at next time. They got it from Deuteronomy 30. Jesus sent out the disciples to the house of Israel and the house of Judah and said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, all through the Gospels, this kingdom of God has been present. It's still present. Peter offers it again in Acts 2, again in Acts 3. But by the time we get to the end of Acts, this kingdom idea is pretty much gone by the wayside. Why? Because the kingdom is now being postponed and something unexpected is going to intervene in history. Now it's intervened for almost 2,000 years, and that is the church. So these are the key doctrines that we'll be studying and learning about as we go through uh, as we go through the book of Acts. And then just one last thing, key words. Here are some key words to watch for, to underline, to highlight as we as you read through Acts. Of course, one would be the Holy Spirit. Also, witness. Uh, witness, the noun uh, is martus is used 15 times in Acts, and the verb martureo, to be a witness or to give evidence, is used four times. Also, watch the word faith. Highlight that every faith or believe, either as a noun or as a verb. The verb is used 37 times. The noun is used 15 times. So that's very important in the book of Acts. Then you have the phrase signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are the signs the, that authenticate or validate uh, the ministry of the apostles. And that phrase is used a number of times. Also, we have the word teaching, didasco. And this is used 16 times. It's almost always translated to teach. And it means to inform or to explain uh, something to people. Uh, the word preaching, as I've already pointed out, is most commonly a translation of the Greek word evangelizo, which is, which is translated preaching 12 times. Uh, it's translated bring good news two times. And one times it's used for telling the good news. Eight times, I think I said ten earlier, uh, eight times the verb caruso is used in the book of Acts. So primarily when you see preaching, about 60, 40, it's going to be the primary word. 
The word caruso is used in Acts 8.5, Acts 9.20, Acts 10.37 and 42, Acts 10.37 and 42, 8.5, and 42, 15.21, 19.13, 20.25, and 28.31. Okay, that'll bring us up to the next point, which is, we didn't get there tonight, how does Acts fit in the flow of biblical thinking? Acts has its, to understand it, you have to go back to Genesis 9. It fits within the flow of biblical revelation. So we'll start there next time. Anybody have any questions? Either you know, either I confused everybody and they don't know what to ask or... I did a great job. Jeff. Uh, you mentioned when we started class that the uh, Holy Spirit had a, a different role in the book of Acts than what we have in the church age and different than the Old Testament. I know that, that isn't what I said. What I said was when you read the phrase, the filling of the Spirit in Acts, it is not the same phrase or grammar as you have in Ephesians 5.18. You had the filling. You had the Ephesians 5:18 filling in the time period of Acts because that's in the church age, but it's a it's a different verb and a different grammatical structure than what you have in Ephesians 5:18. So it's not the same thing. So when you keep reading of when you read of Peter being filled with the Spirit, it is not plerao plus a dative phrase. It is pimplemi plus a genitive. Totally different thing. You'll just have to be here for that. But it's amazing. See, what's happened is that if you read most people, most books from a dispensational perspective on the filling of the Spirit, they'll go and they'll say, see, the, whole, the filling of the Spirit is a repeated thing. Peter's repeatedly filled with the Spirit in Acts. But it's a different verb and it's a different grammatical construction. It's not the same thing that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 5.18. And then what will happen is you'll hear somebody else come along, and they're looking at it from a different perspective. And they're saying, well, your, 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 your view of filling of the Spirit isn't right either because uh, this was just some sort of special revelatory thing. And we have to deal with these two different realities. And I find very few people have done that. So, And I'm not the only one. This isn't new with me. I'm not having a breakthrough. But for some reason, that's just not... Um, clearly understood by a lot of folks who are clearly taught. I haven't found a single commentary that emphasizes it, although I've found some papers, some you know, different individual things, journal articles, things like that to do, but I've, and grammars, but I've never uh, seen a systematic theologian uh, deal with that. So don't get, don't get confused with that. But you have to come back. See, now there's a little teaser there for you. Got the hook in Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to uh, get this orientation and overview for the book of Acts so that as we study it and read it, and we'll have some general idea of what's going on and why it's important and, and the significance that it, it should play in our, our thinking. We pray that you would uh, especially uh, help us to understand this emphasis on God the Holy Spirit in our lives and what that is and what that's not. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.